If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Scott. Hi, it's Dr. Shiloh. Welcome back to Ellie Not So Confidential. It is early November. We got through Halloween. Yep. What did you do on Halloween? Oh, my gosh. I didn't get to do any festivities. I had a like a, a critical sort of crisis work thing that I had oh, to do. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I got tons of overtime. but You left was, out of town. Yeah, and like did a huge... <laughs> like coast-to-coast turnaround, which was kind of amazing I and forgot about exhausting that. at the same time. I paid for it yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Last last week, we had something every single night of the work week, and I was just exhausted and much. kind of pissy by Halloween night, yeah. and let's just trick-or-treat and get it over with and go back home. <laughs> it's too much. I mean, what we were supposed to do was go over to our friend Deb's house. You know, Deb's a, a good friend of both of ours, and she lives in a neighborhood that has hundreds of trick-or-treaters it's the coolest neighborhood it is really cool and the kids ever the kids that come are all ages and super respectful and having a ton of fun and they're coming from all of their neighborhoods which is awesome yeah um, hopefully is it not it might be on a weekend next year that would be good yes it is okay. that'll make it easier that'd be a lot of fun but i always love being there because i have so much obscure nerd information that i was identifying all these obscure like superheroes and Superhero characters. Superhero characters, and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like this family brought their three kids all in uh, Legion uniforms, which is a DC comic set in the future, and it's all teenage superheroes. And I knew Saturn Girl and Bouncing Boy. I mean, this is really smart. The kids obviously yeah. didn't know who they were. No. But the parents were like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yes, our night is made. One person knew. Yay. <laughs> and full size candy bars. Right. Cool. Um, I so. We're back. We're so excited. Tons of stuff going on. Um, we're going to miss not being able to go to... Well, we're going to miss that the True Crime Festival didn't happen. American Crime American Fest. American Crime yeah. Fest. That's it. But it is nice to kind of coast into the holidays and just kind of prep for some other stuff right. that we're looking at for next year. So. Yeah. Next year actually is going to be pretty busy for us, I which think is so. great. I think so. Um, what else did I want to say? Again, oh, my gosh. You guys... Uh, our people that listen, our fans, I mean, I'm, I'm almost like, um, I, I want to be careful about saying our fans, but we do have fans and we're so grateful to have you and your 
feedback and your ratings on iTunes are just amazing. And thank all of you. I mean, I, I thank all of you. I don't, and you know what? I thank anybody for any reviews. Um, yeah, seriously. I, I feel even, like um, any, any even critique is is greatly appreciated. Probably some of our our crossover and exposure stuff with crawl spaces probably help because I feel like we've had a lot of people lately that are new. Yeah. Sort of binging and starting from the beginning, and um, we welcome all of that. So it's kind of neat. Yeah, and we moved into a new relationship with a, a, a company that you'll hear the ad for either in the middle or at the beginning for Anchor, which has made our whole process so much easier. It's kind of crazy. I mean, I guess I guess technology is finally catching up with with the whole podcast milieu right. it's making it easier it's kind of crazy it's gonna make it really easy when my daughter sydney starts her podcast because a lot of the uh feedback from last episode yeah. was about sydney yeah and her little contribution so um yeah she she'll probably make a gazillion dollars but she has a fantastic idea I think actually it's a great <laughs> idea we'll talk more about it later if we do a crossover yeah. with her oh right? I'm, I'm sure she will allow okay. us to that's great we'll and she has see. a great little voice for it <laughs> So what else? Um, I think that's it. Yeah, let's get into what we're talking about today. So the this, uh, as we've mentioned before, or I've mentioned before, both of us are uh, really good friends with a, a colleague of mine at work uh, who is a psychiatric nurse. She's been a psychiatric nurse for a very long time, Miss um, Didi, who is amazing and so knowledgeable, and she has worked in tons of settings you know right now she works with me in a law enforcement setting but has also worked inpatient psychiatric units uh rehab units i mean she's done it all which is amazing and she turned to me one day and said you guys need to do an episode on killer nurses because i think that's fascinating oh i bet i mean this this topic, um, I don't know. I went a lot of different places. At first, I was like, okay, like, yeah, I think people will find that interesting. But man, I came away with a lot of different feelings after. I mean, it's... Ugh. Well, I'm glad you said that because, look, we're 33 episodes in now, mm-hmm. and we've covered a lot of really dark stuff. However, doing the deep dive on this that I did over the past week. And let me tell you, I was so happy to find that there was tons of information in this area and research that nobody really talks about. I mean, right. I mean, cause it's not part of the, the big cultural conversation, but I think the reaction, well, I don't, I'll let you answer to it. I'll tell you why I'm having such a big reaction to it is because you were at your most vulnerable when you were in the care of nurses. Sure. Right. Sure. And there certainly is a whole other podcast that could be done about killer doctors. And of course that could right. be stemming from Christopher Dunch, you know, Dr. Death that was done so well in the right. second season of um, the LA times, which just horrific, horrific there. But what is more subtle is the stories of nurses. And I thought there'd be a handful of them and there's not there's right for the past 150 years there's been stories of these and uh, nurses being brought to justice for horrific crimes. Good that there's a lot of research for what we're doing today, but it's terrifying that there's so much out there. And do you think that's why it bothers you? No, for me, it fits into the category of, I I very much see nurses as first responders, especially ER nurses. Right. So it, it, it really gave me some of the same feelings when we did our firefighter arson episode, because people in these positions of power and trust whom we just trust absolutely blindly in our 
worst time of need, you know, um, for there to be not just a bad version of that person, but someone of the most evil that is doing things that are just directly harming someone or murder. Um, you know, I always used to say that to me, there's nothing worse than a dirty cop because you, you have this person that is, has so much power and authority and whom we should regard as, um, you know, morally, just the epitome of what we would think because why? Because we trust them with so many Straight liberties narrow, they can take away. moral yeah. compass. And really, and what is, what's the, certainly for so many law enforcement agencies, their motto is to protect and serve, right? Right. And although obviously I'm very attuned to the fact that these people are all human and can't be perfect, but in the course of their work should be doing above and beyond, um, in their duty as well as their ethics. And so nurses kind of fell in that category for me of this is just, this is someone we tapping into what you were saying that you're at them, you're most vulnerable, most vulnerable, but that you just trust completely. So, and I think also, and this is something that comes up in the research. That's really fascinating to me about, you know, when you compare these cases versus negligent or malicious doctors is that doctors don't really have that much one-to-one with you. Nurses are there actually doing more physical contact. They're giving you context and definition. I mean, I remember long before I came into this field and I had pretty rough injuries from my performance career. I mean, my, you know, back, knees, elbows, and, you know, an orthopedic surgeon would burst into the room and give me some kind of bullshit about like, yeah, well, you can't do that anymore. And then as I was sitting there shocked, as he left, the nurse would say, okay, let's, let's break this down into what really happened. Yeah. Patients feel like they're building relationships with these people. Right. Right. They're more accessible in a lot of ways. And I think probably off the top, we should put out there that there are fabulous nurses out there. There's always a bad bunch, Right. And we're going to be talking about the worst of those bad bunches right. in any occupation. Um, but just as if we were going to talk about any other occupational group, this is not generalized or, you know, meaning to bring negative connotation to the work that they do because they are, you know, starting off talking about Dee Dee's great because she's so damn smart about everything. Right. She's your rock at work and has been doing it forever. And then there are people like, and I'm, I'm lucky about. to work with uh, four psychiatric nurses total. That's awesome. Which is amazing. What a cool I mean, team. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And um, I won't use all their names because I don't have their permission to. Yeah, I mean, they, I don't think they'd care, but Dee Dee's given us permission. But I'm not, I'm acknowledging all you guys, which I think is wonderful. <laughs> so, but building on what you're talking about, I want to start with, um, I, first, a couple of things. We're really working hard to give you guys a complete, holistic comprehensive and profound bibliography. And this is one of those where if you're interested in what we're doing today, go click the links and read the stuff because it will blow your mind. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's the series on Netflix that we were both um, trying to get through, which is a lot of episodes to try and prepare for this. Right. But if you want to read all the background material, it's really fascinating. So we have all those links for you and we want to give, certainly give props to the authors of the research and the articles that we pulled from Also, um, I want to start with building on what you just said, the idea of 
what what is it that makes people want to be a nurse? And that research to me was was phenomenal and amazing because it pulls out all those positive qualities, all those things that make a really good nurse. One thing that from a practical sense is if you're going into nursing, unless you're going to be working in a private office or a private clinic, if you're working in a hospital, that these people go into this field knowing that they're going to be working shitty shifts, yep. third shift, early hours of the morning when all the bad stuff happens, uh-huh. they're going to be on their feet for decades. Right. You know, so this crisis is not mode for decades. crisis mode for decades. And maybe that's even an element that pulls people in. They like the stimulation. But, you know, don't for a minute think that, you know, that, that nurse, you like if you look on a Yelp review and you see in a hospital like, those nurses were sitting on their asses like, you know, screw you. You didn't see them killing themselves for the past, you know, 14 hours. Right. So anyway, so one of the things in this research that I found that I thought was really fascinating about um, people coming into this field are. So starting with the really prominent characteristics of people that go into nursing, 89 per, well, let's talk about sort of subheadings. One is emotional control, which I think is an, a really, like you were talking about crisis mode, 89% of nurses that took part in this huge study um, were exceptionally good at regulating their emotions in a really healthy way, which is compared to the overall 64% of the general population. That's significantly wow. higher than the general pop. And these are studies that are doing, that are looking at people who are already nurses. This isn't like pre-employment no. stuff. So this, this is, is just naturally been, occurring. Right. And maybe they've developed some of these qualities. Sure. You know, it's possible that, you know, like the resiliency was there. Yeah. This is fascinating too. Nurses have a higher ability, a significantly higher ability to deal with conflict resolution. So as unpleasant as the challenges can be, 83% of nurses are more comfortable facing conflict situations directly as compared to 67 of the general population. So, I mean, they have to deal with demanding and whining patients, complaining. Remember the word whining, folks, because we'll come back to whining. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Complaining family members, um, abusive, neglective, um, you know, demeaning doctors. Um, Nurses have this you know, talent for being objective and keeping their emotionally intense situations in perspective. And then this is fascinating because this is not a quality that I have. In most disagreements, 89% of nurses would rather compromise with others than be right. And that's compared to 63% of the general population. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Okay. So when it comes to value and ethics, 94% of nurses will stick to principles uh, when, when faced with peer pressure compared to 86% of the population. I find that very interesting, too, because I'm not sure that 86% of the general population actually sticks to their principles. Yeah. Yeah. How are we defining principles for them? Um, And then, like, this is really cool. So when you talk about value and ethics, about self-view, 89% of nurses believe they would make a good role model compared to 79% of the general population. Okay, okay. Right? Um, And then this is super – this is interesting to me. 83% of nurses – recognize that the best resource or the 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 thing that they have to offer to others particularly to those that are in need that are in pain that um that are uh, disabled or you know in their care is that they need companionship and that's compared to 60 percent of the population 
So, I mean, it's yeah. it's amazing. I think they also just, this is just anecdotally from talking to nurses um, that I've come in contact with through work, primarily when I was on patrol and going to the hospital yeah. a lot, taking clients there, clients, <laughs> They weren't clients. They're, you call them Arrestees. subjects. <laughs> subjects. Um, or, you know, there, we would have calls at the hosp- the local hospital. But they held nurse trainees to a really high standard. I mean, they were tough on each other. Yeah. They're, they're sort of notorious for knowing their shit but expecting their trainees and people going through the training process to come with their A game because they're not going to tolerate anything other than that. So they'll, they've always been, you know, sort of known for that and they'll eat their own in a second if you're not doing the job well. Which I, that, you know, and we'll tie that back in later about, you know, one of the reasons that so many of these cases that we're going to talk about don't get reported is that nurses do have suspicions and they will, they have these high standards and they're gatekeepers of their own um, peer group as far as their trainees but, you know, if you're working with an administration that's just, just going to go kind of shuffle something away yeah. for due to liability to not deal with it. Anyway, we'll come back to that. Yeah. Nurses are highly resilient. They bounce back quickly from disappointment and failure. 89% of the population of nurses as opposed to less than half of it's the huge. general population. Um, 100% of nurses have uh, uh, consider themselves to be very self-motivated compared to 88% of the population. Um, amazing stuff. Altruism, very, very highly rated in altruism. Um, that doing things that, regardless of, which this is fascinating to me, regardless of their belief on the political spectrum, that they treat patients the same, which I, I find that That's interesting. Wonderful. So you've got this whole spectrum of political and religious and, and, um, sort of, uh, belief systems, but they adhere to the requirements of the job. That is fantastic. So now let's turn to the darker stuff, right? So yes, when we talk about, please. we, there are two terms that are used to describe the types of nurses that end up killing their patients. They're angels of death and angels of mercy. They're always nicknamed those two. Like, I wish they would come up with something more original because everyone I looked into, I'm like, Ugh, they're using this moniker for all of them yeah i mean i think it's i I don't know i have a different reaction to it um like to me it's super creepy because you don't think even though you know traditionally angels are actually quite scary readings if you read any of like faith-based literature they've kind of turned into these like you know white fluffy you know halo super care little cherub yeah the idea that there's this angel of death but then also the flip side, this angel of mercy, because some of the categories of these killers really saw themselves as compassion. I mean, they were complete psychopaths, right? but they saw themselves as giving something important, or at least that's what they presented in their defense. Right. Correct. Correct. And I, I get that for that uh, typology. That makes sense. But yep. it seems it seems more of a moniker for the group of rather than know specific labels we give to certain serial killers right so right so you know why are we focusing this episode on nurses rather than doctors a couple of reasons Didi came up with the idea (laughs) (laughs) thanks Didi. um another one is that doctors have been talked about certainly like we the podcast dr death was a great example of of something that was absolutely horrific um but also like we started with that the idea that this one-to-one 
intimacy and this one-to-one level of care is what really can skeeve us out. Like you're really giving over your trust. Yeah. In the same way that like, and when we get around to doing our McMartin preschool hearings, the idea of why the satanic panic in that area got so frightening to parents is that we, you know, the idea that we gave over the trust of our kids to this organization. And of course that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, But that's why I think it bothers people so much. Well, and also we're, when you mentioned like the Dr. Death, we're not talking about malpractice or negligence in these cases that we're highlighting today where this doctor nurse has this, you know, pill problem and people are dying because they're neglecting them or being negligent. We're talking about intent. Right, exactly. So maliciousness, intent, and whether it was malicious or supposedly benign, which sometimes they try and frame it that way. There's a whole, and even within this genre of killers, there's an entire spectrum of why people do it, right? So um, there are three, this is amazing to me that they've been boiled down in one of the research papers to uh, basically three categories. One is considered the malignant hero. And the malignant hero is like, represents a pattern of crimes where the subject endangers the life of the patient in some way, and then attempts to save them. So uh, what's interesting in this, and I didn't get the numbers on it because I couldn't find it directly, but what it seemed like is the malignant hero was primarily males. Okay. All right. And we do see some differentiation as we'll talk about coming up is that one of the things that you never saw in any of the research in the male nurse killers is the male nurses did not kill babies. They might have killed toddlers, but okay. they did not kill infants. Where the or women. The women did, which I think is fascinating. It is. It is. And, I, and there should be more research on that, as much research as there is. And so this malignant hero typology also reminds me of the firefighters arsonist that yes. we talked about, right? Yes. So they can be the one to set the fire, come to the rescue, get the accolades for it. Right. And they're kind of making their own problems to then rescue or save. And what's it's really fascinating about this is that some of these malignant heroes will actually come in. They will try and set it up with uh, like maybe uh, the the in- introduction of a, a toxic substance or a poison or an overdose of a drug with the intention of actually resuscitating them. Right. There are some that have no intention of resuscitating and will fake their attempts at bringing them back. But what they're getting is that they are being seen as someone who is like jumping into the flames like right. your arsonist killer. Right. You know, and trying to rescue this person. So this is... So this is a more dramatic or overtly expressed need for attention. So a, a lot of them that were caught in their interviews and their psych evaluations will finally kind of come back to this this narrative of it becomes an adrenaline rush for the emergency situation. So they're kind of tweaking on their own body chemicals, being addicted to that situation and sort of the idea of this creating this false persona of themselves as a hero. Mm-hmm. So now that was sort of the the main one that stuck out, but close behind it would be the mercy killer. 
And then the mercy killer, at least the way they frame it, whether or not they actually believe it or they're telling themselves this, is that their clients, patients, um, the people in their care are so beyond help and are so at the effect of their suffering and pain that they're here to release them and help them go on to Putting heaven. them out of their misery. They're putting them out of their misery, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting in that is that whether or not do they believe it? Are they delusional in their belief that this person would be better off? And then there are even some of them that only would kill people that were in comas. Right. And then others that would really focus on uh, subjects or patients that had Alzheimer's. So there would be some that clearly had in their own psychological makeup, like, I don't want to be out of control and not be in control of my own mind and my executive functioning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to project that desire to annihilate it within myself onto the people that I care for. Right. So they're making that decision for the person or the family of that person. Right. They can't make it themselves. I, I think it's interesting. I think I go more with their sort of telling themselves that in um, like looking at it as a cognitive distortion. So they're justifying and rationalizing their behavior and their decisions because it, it, overall they know it's wrong, but they're sort of softening it. Well, I'm doing it because which I'm is putting them out. You of know, on a on a less toxic and certainly less murderous level that's what we all do you know we all make excuses for our behavior this is just where it's become completely out of control and the drive there i mean you know sometimes we can get our hands on psych reports of people i wasn't able to get any psych reports except general studies of um qualities but some a handful of the ones we're going to talk about like I would love to get the MMPI on that. It would be fascinating. And the hair psychopathy. Right. That would be great. So um, why the medical field? So if someone is oriented in this way, why we've talked about reasons that altruistic and positive individuals go into nursing. Real quick. Did you talk about the third typology yet? Did I? No. Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Back up. I'm not going to edit that out. Um, It's sadistic control. So there are some that are clearly in this position, whether they went into it for this or not. I mean, literally, I mean, I would think if you have a characterological bent towards sadism and a, you know, domination and control of other people, then you're probably making an active choice to go right into this. So they use their position as a way of um, exerting control, exerting power dominance over what would really be considered very helpless individuals. It's so sort of the ultimate power. It is because and that someone lives or dies. Yes, it's it's the power of life and death and it, that is what links all three of these typologies together is that power is this recurrent theme in the quote unquote psychological constructs of nurses who murder and the power over of life of death. Like you said, it's the ultimate power. By the way, the majority of what we're talking about today was exhaustively covered in this amazing dissertation that I'll put a link to in the show notes. This guy is an attorney and a nurse and has a doctor of philosophy. He's from the university of Adelaide. I tried to get in touch with him. It was from 2008 I read 268 pages of his dissertation last night. It was freaking brilliant. Whoa. It was so good. And an easy read. Actually, like an easy read if you want to read it, folks. I'm such a nerd. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So why the medical field? Nurses are trusted. So a lot of people actually, whether they are 
altruistically bent, they might want to be go because trust is a form of power, isn't it? Oh, sure. So sure. this is a way like, oh, I want to be in a position where I have ability to control certain aspects of my work environment. Their nurses are trusted. But these are also fields that may attract individuals that have a character logical interest or maybe even what could be called a pathological fixation in powerful but passive control over people's lives. So going back to it's the power over life or uh, life and death. I do it because I can sort of that drive. And, you know, what's interesting and tying it to even tying it back to Mary Kay Letourneau Uh is that that is the same type of typology of individuals who go into teaching, not because they necessarily want to be educators, but because I feel out of control in my life and I know that this is going to be a situation where I can control. Right. And people are going to inherently trust me. Yes. uh, Rely on me, whether it's the, the children or the patients or the parents or the family members right. of patients. Right. Interesting. Um, so, oh, what was the other, one of the other things I thought was uh, fascinating is that many of these people really get off on the perception of the relatives of the patients as seeing them as angels. Oh, right. So okay. it's not only right. the patients, it's the feedback of, oh, you're taking such great care of my mom, my dad, my sister, my child. And there's really something that is very stimulating um, for them. Yeah. Um, I have some examples of that. Like, oh, good. Oh, okay. Good. So they may be motivated by sexual pleasure. We had two or three examples. I'll only focus on one. Of, Men or women? Of a woman who said that she really expressed that she had a sexual satisfaction from uh holding she would climb into beds with the patients that she had administered um adrenaline to so that she would hear their hearts race up hear them have a heart attack and hear the heart stop whoa talk about an outlier it is an outlier and it's also that's coming from case material so to me it gets a little cloudy because was that part of a defense was that an attempt to frame the the subject as being insane you know that could be yeah because it would be so rare to have a female offender that actually has a paraphilia that specific that is linked to also murder i don't know who knows it could be just one of those one-offs it could be or it could be one of those that like if you went and you interviewed her co-workers and the other nurses were like yeah we spotted her immediately totally. Maybe she was a nut. compulsive liar <laughs> yeah and really should not have been working the night shift you know alone oh god um so many of the uh angels of mercy believe that they are erasing pain or they're easing pain and um i mean even some of them that are more sort of on the antisocial um or psychopathic spectrum they would attempt to represent their intentions as compassionate and, you know, rep- you know, an attempt at euthanasia. But that doesn't fit with serial killers because serial killers are not motivated by a sense of compassion regarding their victims. Um, uh, nurses convicted of murder have reported sexual dimension to the homicide activity. Um, it's more... This is where it gets complex, is that idea of the outlier of, of sexuality is their sexual pleasure derived from that? Is that actually just a version of a power trip? Right. Or is the 
like emotional intimacy and physical intimacy being twisted for them. Exactly. I'm sure Especially in, in their, that example yeah. when she's climbing into right, bed and right. holding. Ooh, it's it gives you it really. I mean, I've seen a lot, folks, but the idea that somebody's holding you so that they can listen to you die right. is the ultimate of creep. Um, I wonder what their their relationships are like in the rest of their lives and if that sexual and intimate intimacy are getting twisted up. Yeah. So one of the things that the dissertation by um, Dr. Field um, found was that there is no specific age at which a nurse is more or likely, more or less likely to murder patients. Uh, which I find interesting. One of the things he did find, which is fascinating, he was the one that uh, we got the data from about male nurses not going for infants, is that the description and the way media constructs the view of male nurses who kill is very different from women. Uh, Many times the nurses are described as cherubic and angel-like, you know, kind of like, shiny fat little pink faces right right um, so almost like feminizing them or dismissing that they could be of that level of harm so you know, that's what i picture in my head and i don't know if it's one particular prolific one that i'm thinking of but yeah like that's exactly what i picture with that person well i will say this the majority of the photos that i looked at looked at of the male nurse killers there is only one of them that was gaunt Okay. The rest of them are kind of full-faced, but right. but I find it's very interesting. And it's a commentary sort of on Western culture that mm-hmm. we we have shifted our view of nurses as uh, it's a feminine profession. It is, therefore, it's a second-class profession. Sure. And why would a man do that? There's got to be something wrong with a man that would do that, which is absolute bullshit. I mean, I've had great female nurses. I've had great male nurses. But I think it's sort of a remnant of that internalized misogyny that our culture holds. Because it wasn't always female dominated in our country. No, no. I think that only happened after the Civil War. Yeah, that sounds right. You know, and up until like in in Victorian English, uh, Victorian English, Victorian England, the majority Mm -hmm. of nurses were male. Um, or it was divided into um, different uh, categories of responsibilities of male versus female. So the one that, in, in looking at all the studies, female nurses um, have really gotten the most notoriety and the most media attention, whether it's been media or literary attention, um, and because their victims have been primarily children. Well, and because that- female murderers fascinate us and it goes against the idea of the nurturing caring compassionate mother especially so with like okay a a female nurse kills elderly dementia patients doesn't quite have the the kick or the the terror of a nurse that kills children right right because children we really do compare i mean you know elderly people with dementia are 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 very vulnerable but we still look at children as way more vulnerable right right? um the most common method of killing what do you think it is overdose lethal injection Mm -hmm. overdose um but that being said they got uh, further studies show that nurses are super creative and in, oh, in the yeah. types of drugs that they've used and the methods in which they've done it. Like um, 
and even some of them have been stupid. There was one that just kept putting air bubbles into right. people, like which is absolutely the first thing people are going to look for is like, how do you, you you can't do that and get away with it? I mean, I don't know why my mind is thinking this way right now, but to avoid some of the you know forensics of toxicology and um, injection sites, I mean, couldn't you just smother a baby pretty easily and it not have as many um i don't know telltale signs of an injection or an overdose or something like that or i don't know well i think that i'm not a doctor suff- i'm not a medical doctor with, obviously. with suffocation there's more in infants i think there's more of a tendency to see the facial lividity and discoloration maybe versus in an elderly elderly patient so there are many examples of mm-hmm. the elderly patients uh being suffocated God, what a way to go. You've already got dementia and then this, you know, nurse is looming over you with a pillow. But then, you know, hearkening back to the different typologies and if if they have this savior complex and they need to induce some sort of medical emergency to then either resuscitate the child or appear as if they're resuscitating, you can't necessarily suffocate and think that, you know, all the bells and whistles are going to go off so you come and save them. So... I don't know. I guess I'm just trying to think like they would, but yeah. I mean, but remember, it's you're trying to place yourself in the mind of. I know, right? Yeah, I, mean, but, I am. You know, we kind of do that. <laughs> that's kind of what we do. But you can't. Um, so a huge proportion of nurses who murder their patients actually confess their crimes. Um, however, just as high as the number who confess, they subsequently retract their confessions. But that's not also borne out by. Whether or not the attorney got the attorney got in there and said, "No, you need to pull that back." Right. Um, nurses get a lot. Of, nurses who murder get a lot of celebrity for the very reason that you know they're in positions of trust, and it tends to be more salacious in the media than other types of um, murderers. So, when we look at enabling conditions like the things that can help an an individual in this position be more successful in their crimes. We look at, like we said before, there's trust in nurses. Mm-hmm. There's also a thing that nurses can do that doctors cannot as easily is that nurses can move from state to state. Nurses can move all over the state with a, a, a type of uh, traveling license. And it actually makes for a really great lifestyle. I know right. several nurses that basically are snowbirds. You know, they go where the comfortable weather is mm-hmm. and they live sort of this transient lifestyle, make a ton of money because, by the way, folks, our entire country is in huge shortage of nurses. Yeah. We need we need more people to go into nursing. Or there I've known people who've called themselves mobile nurses where essentially they work sort of this per diem job where they're just sort of called out to yeah. wherever they need to go. Um so it's tricky. It's it's um I think they can move around by their own volition if they want to. And this reminds me of our trucker serial killers just perfect occupation for um someone to move towards if they want to have ultimate mobility to be able to pick and choose right victims um so very victimology driven um it also reminds me because you're probably going to talk about this but when when we look at how they can easily go into other um, hospitals or clinics and just kind of um, 
avoid their past and if some suspicion has come on them, whether it's them moving themselves or maybe their employer asking them to leave to avoid high profile media coverage or liability like you were talking about. It reminds me of the Catholic Church and just yeah, just put, know, just Catholic ship, priests ship the priests around and, sure. and hide it. And f- again, for liability right. issues. What I think is fascinating too about this type of crime is I wonder if we will see less and less of this in the future. On one hand, you know, sort of homogenizing and corporatizing um, our medical treatment as a first world country is there are certain deficits to it. You know, there's less intimacy. There's less you know, true communication between doctors that are healers and their patients. On the other hand, as everything gets um, sort of digitized, it would be very easy to go in and do an analysis like, hey, let's look at what the, the common factors are for this particular hospital in this area where babies are dying between three and four in the morning, right? you know, be able to, to put it, to crunch those numbers better. I mean, some of what we're doing already in these enabling conditions is, um, is this, this researcher was able to pull out what happens. And on top of employment mobility of nurses, there can be culpability of other staff where nurses who, you know, with all these great qualities they have, you know, I mean, I'm talking about ethical, moral, lawful nurses they might doubt themselves and go, is this really happening? Mm-hmm. You know, and there is a, there's a white line, you know, just like in cops, there's a, there's sure. a blue line and there's, you know, there's a code of silence among many sort of uh, power oriented organizations and, right. and individuals that is seen in the medical community too. And I think it might be because they may be questioning like, is that really happening? But one of the things that the shud- the studies are showing is that even in nurses that, are not killers <laughs> that <clears throat> patients tend to not do as well when there is a poor relationship between the nurse and the attending physician. Oh, really? So if, if the doctor is, is sort of creating a toxic atmosphere for the uh-huh. nurse, the patients don't do as well. Hmm. I think that's very fascinating. Yeah. That's, that is really interesting. So there's, you know, um, the organizational response to suspicions, like you said, is sometimes just to shuffle it along, which is what happened with uh, Christopher Dunch in mm-hmm. Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, they just kept shuffling him around until it was two surgeons that happened to cross paths, you know, and compare notes. But at least those were two surgeons that had pull. Can you imagine two nurses meeting in the scrub room, getting ready and going, hey, do you know about Annie Wilkes? We'll use right. the misery character. Like, do you know, you know, Annie's. Every time Annie's around, somebody um, dies of a heart attack. Right. You know, oh, we should do something about that. And then they go to a corporate-run hospital, and the hospital's like, you know, shut up. Right. You know. Right. And I mean, talking about n- being in desperate need of nurses in this country, I mean, just going back to background checks. If, if they're going to do less thorough background checks, if they're more desperate to hire, and just like with police officers. I know a lot of agencies that, you know, they end up kicking themselves in the ass for not doing a more thorough background check because they really needed to put cops on the street. Oh, God. If you if we were going to go down. I know. We're yeah, not we, going we down that road. We are not going to go down that road. But, man, that is <laughs> But I could see so the same true. thing. Like, let's yeah. hurry up. We need to get this person through the process. And it's a very complicated or, you know, there's nurses and, and doctors who have falsified their records. and Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so it's th- those, that's what we'd be calling like flaws in their regulatory system, mm-hmm. which is absolutely a huge, huge part of it. Um, there's a moving on to diagnostic factors, you know, is it madness or badness, which I think is yeah. an interesting sort of trying to figure, figure out the difference. And there's what we find is as with any other form of criminality, there's a huge spectrum within the ind- individuals who perpetrate this. And that is that some will have a, a pretty severe psychiatric history mm-hmm. that has gone hidden um, that they've not addressed that may be layered with a substance abuse issue, which sure. is also very common in nurses. But um, you tie that around when it comes to looking at the major cases. And, you know, there are some that get caught, that get convicted, and they claim they are acting out of compassion. You know, um, I killed 27 elderly and ailing patients. Because I just felt sorry for them. Like nobody was coming to visit them. They were mm-hmm. half of them were in a coma. They had dem- dementia. You know, so they want to frame themselves as doing somebody a favor, as we said earlier, and you know, insisting that they had that they were doing this out of sympathy, compassion, and a desire to end suffering, which is just right. And I saw so many times with the case examples that people were throwing out the label of Munchausen's by proxy. And I felt like that was too easy of an out. I mean, what do, what do you think about that? Uh, you know, look, you know, oh, this is one of the other sources that we used as a, as a springboard um, was a Ranker article that was really well written um, and, and sort of pointed me towards some research and some, some big cases. And one of them, there was only one that uh, I think April is her name. I'll give her her credits as well. Um, and Ranker is great for this kind of stuff. It's kind of like BuzzFeed. For yeah, it's listic- a quick it's a launching point. Yeah. But um, she only framed one of them as, as Munchausen by proxy. Oh, yeah. And that one was really, it was significant, you know, and she was doing yeah. it with long-term clients. So there was the idea of, you know, clearly talking about more of a mental illness factor right. than criminality. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, even though the behaviors are criminal, the underlying motivation is that mental illness. Yeah. When I was, um, so the, the series on Netflix is called nurses who kill and each episode highlights a different killer nurse, males and females. And one of the cases they were kind of talking about Munchausen's by proxy and they were interviewing the treating physician who was very shaken up by all this after it all finally came out. And he basically said, I think that's a bunch of BS. She was a psychopathic killer. Right. And um, I don't know. It feels like a soft diagnosis to me, too, to easily slap on there and say this is what's happening with them. Yeah, I th- I agree. I think it's kind of a cop out because there's other factors at play. Yeah. It, it, I guess you're just playing the odds. But if it's just that they were making babies or children or patients sick and no one was ever dying, I could probably put that on there a little mm-hmm. bit easier. And then, um, you know, if, if someone accidentally dies due to this Munchausen's inducement of, of making them ill, you know, you would think if it was just Munchausen's that they would then sort of back off. Like that might scare them if, if someone actually dies from it because it's about the attention of the illness and getting them better. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, no? Cause then I would wonder if th- that means that then the attention is going to shift back to them as the poor 
like you tried so hard to save your your right. daughter, your son, your mother, your your patient. I mean, yeah, I'm could, just wondering if could. maybe that that it then shifts to where they get that kind of attention, the 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 sympathy. Right. I don't right. know. It's, that it would is be interesting. Yeah. Um. Now, another thing that came out of the research that is very fascinating um, was that in comparison to other homicidal crimes, the reality is that in almost all the cases, the nurses who do fit the criteria for serial killers, they're caught and convicted. Hmm. So because I guess because the evidence is there, right? It's not sort of like our truckers where there are probably hundreds of thousands of victims that have just disappeared. We don't have any evidence. We'll never see the bodies here. The evidence is there. It's just about, it's about putting the puzzle pieces together. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have the, um, yeah, the numbers of just unsolved serial killings in this country are pretty crazy. If you actually look at the numbers, um, but that's really interesting. So there's a lot of convictions in this specific um, subculture of serial killers, which it only take by definition only takes two or more now. So right. I mean, right, which seems like a small difficult. number to put a serial label on, but that's another. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things that that came out that was very interesting by Doctor Field that I found fascinating because we kind of got this in our doctoral classes. I'm sure you got some sort of history of forensics or history of of psychology that sort of related related to how children were viewed over the ages, how people of color versus women. I mean, you kind of have a, you want to get sort of a sociological construct going for how the, the spirit of the time informs the view. And one of the things that Dr. Field says is that in the 21st century, we have a very different relationship with death than we did in the past. I mean, up until 150 years ago, you needed to have five kids because generally maybe two of them were not going to make it past adolescence and your lifespan was really not going to be that long unless you had a lot of money. Uh So it's, and, and also the idea of murder wasn't even as sort of horrific. It was more seen as death is a really a part of life. People die you grieve, you mourn, you go through this process and you get over it. And now we have become really sort of, we have become more and more distant from sickness and we've become more sort of non-related to the death process. So we, excuse me, we fear death more than we used to. I think that's what, what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. And so so that makes, once again, is another factor that makes these types of crimes seem so incredibly salacious. Right. I think that's cultural as well. I think so. I mean, we have lots of different cultures that are prominent in this country where death is celebrated, if you will, you know, it's not something necessarily to fear. Right. And, um, honor continuing to honor people who have died where you know some other cultures that's something that kind of goes by the wayside right right yeah i think if you do you remember the series um uh six feet under yeah six feet under's first episode like the the pilot episode talks about when when the the father of the uh, patriarch of the family dies his wife has sort of a meltdown because everything about the funeral is too sanitized. And she sort of like 
jumps into the pile of dirt and grabs the the dirt with her hands as opposed to putting it in a shaker, which is one of the Mm. things they do now is they give you a little shaker with grave dirt in it to shake over the coffin so your hands don't get dirty. Oh, yeah. Jeez, God forbid your hands get dirty. I know. You just lost someone in that. Right. So, okay, we're wrapping it up um, with all of our background information. We're going to get into how this is portrayed in the media with the current second season of Castle Rock, which I am obsessed with. We got our favorite killer nurse, Annie Wilkes, is back, yep. um, along with some supernatural creatures from Jerusalem's lot. And we're going to also give you uh, live examples. I'm going to start with a case example, and this is going to be Janine Jones. So Janine Jones is the person that inspired Annie Wilkes, who we will be talking about in a moment. Um, and the character Annie Wilkes, the, <laughs> she didn't inspire another killing. <laughs> no, right, right. Um, so Janine Jones, she was a nurse. She was a um, licensed vocational nurse, an LVN in Texas, and her crimes occurred between 1977 and 1982. So just a little bit about her. She she was adopted um, when she was still a child. Her Father died of cancer. Her adopted father died of cancer. And her brother died by accidentally blowing himself up when he was building a pipe bomb. Okay. So already we've got some profile elements that show that this person did not come from a stable household. Uh, Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So the mother, adopted mother, then gets really deep into her alcoholism after the death of her husband and her son. So this is what Janine Jones is growing up in. Um, Colleagues said that as she became a nurse, she was very loud, very brash, kind of, and I kind of think of those things when I think of some nurses, but that it would it would be really inappropriate at times and in front. She'd kind of turn it on and off, um, but that she would even say sexually inappropriate things and try to to talk about her own sex life and thinking that she would get attention for it. And she got attention for it, but not probably the the attention that she thought she would get it was really off-putting so somebody that clearly i mean okay you're talking about was that her biological brother or her foster brother i'm sure it was the adopted family i don't think they adopted two children okay so there's some conduct disorder and that going on in that family she's exposed to those sort of behaviors there's an alcoholic Mm -hmm. mother figure and now here's someone with really poor boundaries right and, and not not being aware of the impact, like not having that filter that sort of gets built into you by the time you're six or seven years old. Yeah. So as an adult, here she is, she's secured this job as an LVN, but socially she's acting inappropriately. But it does seem that what people said is, is attention seeking. Yeah. Um, but people were really turned off about by it. Um, also, she really didn't like to be challenged and she didn't like figures in authority telling her what to do. That seemed to be one of the places in which um, she didn't excel at work. So she's not a team player. (laughs) And which that's what nurses are. Nurses are sort of field lieutenants taking directives from, I mean, she's an LVN, which means an RN, which would be a higher level would be directing her into her duties. Exactly. And she'd have interns that were actually 
higher on the totem pole than her. Right. So she's got an authority issue. She's got an authority issue. Um, Not a great job for somebody with authority issues. No, no. So with Janine Jones, she worked as an LVN at Bexar County Hospital. It's now the University Hospital of San Antonio. And she was a nurse in the intensive care unit, pediatric intensive care unit. And when she's working her shift, which was 3 p.m. to 11 p.m., at some point in in the late 70s, a st- statistically improbable number of children die under her care within those hours of that shift. And some of the other nurses are starting, like you said, you know, they're sort of putting two and two together of who is always working or who is always under her care when this is happening. Um, there's some great reenactments on <laughs> nurses who kill in the Netflix series of, you know, her, some nurses sort of calling her out on things and um, just some really terrible acting I love it. I, <laughs> with like, the, with the thick Texas accent. <laughs> I want to do it so bad. I like so like I have no uh, fantasies or, or no, you know, who knows if I would ever have the opportunity to be on camera again, but I would love to be just one of the victims or something. Right. A reenactment actor. actor. I just love it. I love it so much. Well, also I thought I I noted this because the forensic files episode that is on Janine Joan is called nursery crimes. I'm like, that is so perfect. They're they're just about as good as naming their episodes as, well, you wouldn't know this, but OPI nail polishes at naming their different colors. They're all snarky, like little play on words. Oh, how funny. Okay, that's great. <laughs> um, but um, so she's working in in this unit. The, the children are dying. And at some point, the hospital obviously is is making note of this but here we go where there's so fear of so much fear of being sued and for this to be really of high profile nature basically what they do is they just ask all of their LVNs to resign or to move on just to get rid of whomever the problem might be i mean that's horrific to think about that they know it's a person most likely so let's just get rid of everyone instead of looking into it deeper I mean, it's just another example of what we were talking, not seeing the patients as human beings or not even, I mean, not, not looking at the patients who have already died or the potential ones coming up. They're just thinking of them in terms of, of money numbers. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and the units that she worked in, in these different hospitals, actually the, it was noted that there was a lot of, um, language barriers with a lot of the Mexican population in this area um, where a a lot of poor clientele that could not really afford good care and treatment, but also then those individuals are being treated less than. um, And and I think overall the the hospital reacting this way is sort of a, a branching off of that where these parents, these patients aren't being seen really as people who should be taken seriously or it can kind of be shoved under the carpet. Their care is less important than English speaking individuals. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, So Jones, she leaves, she ends up taking a position at a pediatrician's clinic in Kerrville, Texas. And it was finally here that she ends up getting caught. So the, the doctor, um, 
at this clinic ends up finding a bottle of succinol choline, um, which is a muscle relaxer, I believe, um, that has puncture marks in the top of the bottle, like several puncture marks. And only she and Jones have access to this bottle, this cabinet where all this medication is kept. Um, so this sort of ends up creating suspicion as well as here we have a, a 15 month old child, Chelsea McClellan, and she has a seizure while she's in Jones's care. She was brought in for something completely benign, ends up having this seizure, but recovers because Jones is there to, to help. Um, but weeks later she ends up dying after the mother sees Jones giving her injections into her thighs, which she said were immunizations. Um, but little Chelsea ends up passing away. And this is the first time, even though other children have died under her care, that the Texas Rangers are notified. And just so happens that Chelsea is blonde hair, blue eyed, and all of a sudden attention is being given to this right. problem. So, so she ends up, um, Jones ends up getting arrested and convicted. And um, she is sentenced to... 99 years for the death of Chelsea, and then also they were able to link her to a um, for to nearly killing a four-month-old baby boy, Rolando Santos, and she return she gets a term of 60 years that's going to run concurrent with the other one. So she ends up going to prison, essentially on this 99-year sentence. Um, but for as as harshly as we think Texas treats its prisoners and criminals, they had this weird law in the 70s and 80s, basically, like if you were convicted between 1977, 1987, because of prison overcrowding, they were going to let you go on good behavior after something significantly less than what So some percentage was. of time served... Correct. And did, do you know if at that time anything had to do with the nature of the crime, like violent versus nonviolent? Or was it because I know from I know from my experience and working in this is that when especially in eastern southeastern states, right, once overcrowding becomes an issue, it's like uh, everything else is just put to the back. It doesn't matter right. what the crime was. I don't think it matters. I, I mean, I guess one could say, if depending on how you're defining violence, that this wasn't violent. But the fact that she was a serial murderer, um, even though she only has conviction at this point for one murder, for right? One. Uh, but there's all of these suspicions. And essentially, she was due to parole um, last year in 2018 after serving about 33 years, so a third of her sentence, because of this law. And it's, it, it's really interesting how... Um, there are a lot of advocates in the community that were like, how can this happen? Of course, she was a absolutely model prisoner with, um, you know, nothing on her record. I think there were even attempts to have other inmates pose in trying to get information out of her, like confessions to other crimes. And she was like, lips are sealed. I'm getting out in 2018 and I'm going to go live my life sort of thing. So they, they could not get her to crack because people are now starting to scramble to go, wait, wait a minute. She's going to be let out in 2018 and she killed all these kids. Wow. What can we do at this point? 
Um, Should have thought of that earlier. Yeah, I know. Um, one of the oh, after um, Chelsea died, she was spotted at Chelsea's grave, and the mother thought that she actually took some trinkets and items from Chelsea's grave that were laid there. That which is just it's a whole other. That's a whole other. Uh, aspect of serial killers right. is keeping trophies right so right. If she couldn't if she had lost all of her belongings while being in prison this is a way she could collect something yeah yeah wow so but that that happened prior to her being investigated and while she was still out um after they um buried chelsea so isn't it interesting to what a model prisoner she was and i don't know if it necessarily falls into sort of nascent or latent good qualities of being a nurse or if it falls into sort of the way we would look at some psychopaths people that are really high on the antisocial spectrum that do well in prison because they're contained right yeah oh absolutely she knows the rules to play by she knows what her end game is that i'm one of the lucky ones that within this 10-year period got convicted and i can get out and these consequences within this environment are very clear. It's all yep. spelled out as opposed to being out in the free world where everything is right. You know, everything is malleable. Right. Right. So she, it, at one point, um, like you were talking about earlier, confessions being redacted and things like that. At one point she talked about Chelsea's death, um, during the investigation saying that her reason for doing it and for, possibly making other children sick is that she was trying to stimulate the creation of a pediatric intensive care unit in Kerrville, the smaller town that she went to. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, right. That's uh that's some, there's a rationalization. For yeah. You. That's some mental gymnastics. Um, creative. An inmate testified or, or wrote a letter saying that at one point, Janine had said that the voices in her head killed the babies, not her. So there's kind of this all, I don't know, you know, there's sort of this weird excuse making, but other than that, she well, pretty that comes much after the fact, shut. you know, it becomes, that was never part of it at the beginning. Right. It would seem that if that was an issue that would have been pulled out by the attorneys at the beginning. Right. Yeah. You'd think so. So to avoid the release in um, 2018, um, some attorneys were able to indict her on five other killings in the original county um, on children who died between 1981 and 1982, all from overdoses. And they were able to dig through files and realize that they were under her care at that time enough to bring charges against her. Um, so as of September of this year, 2019, she will stand trial for five more murders. So she has not been let out. Um, if you guys want to follow this, the online news, news, um, outlet, mysanantonio.com, every time she's in court, this reporter, Elizabeth Zavala is following it and putting out new information. So, um, it's, we'll see how it goes, but at this point she's going to stand trial for five more murders. Wow. So that, so from what I understand, um, I don't know if it's ever been talked about from Stephen King himself, but I know director Rob Reiner of misery said that Kathy Bates killing spree that we see in her scrapbook is based on Janine Jones. So, right. That's what I had heard as well. And I, I read several different sources 
because I'm a, a big fan of Stephen King and I find the the story about how he got to this idea is is really interesting because King is really open about his substance abuse challenges and some of the emotional challenges he's had, as well as having to be under the care of a nurse when he was in a horrific, horrific um, car accident. And he actually has a short story about a nurse or that it involves a nurse that is supernaturally based versus what misery is, is not supernatural, but the supernatural one is a really great personification of this badass, no bullshit nurse that doesn't take crap off anybody and her having to deal with something that's supernatural. So I, on one hand, he's, you know, done this really positive view of it, but the inspiration for the story was not only Janine, but also his experience of the the weight of celebrity and having people that were, you know, that are fans that really crossed, you know, crossed the line. Right. Because he's, he's been uh, attacked at book uh-huh. signings, as has uh-huh. people, a lot of horror writers like Clive Barker um, completely went off the grid because he had some very, very scary fans. And King as well, you know, has reported that he had this experience and he, you know, writing from this really kind of reflecting the points that we talked about earlier, which is you are at your most vulnerable. Sure. And so now he creates this character that was, was so incredibly vulnerable. So in the book, uh, versus the movie with Kathy Bates versus the current series, uh, all of them. I mean, I get so excited because I just love this, this idea. And I remember reading it and thinking it was so great. And then seeing how they adapted the movie and how many huge stars all turned it down. Yep. Kathy Bates was completely unknown. Right. She was just a stage actress. She's a stage actress. um, Really well known as a stage actress. But, um, and respect, she had done a play called Night Mother, which was, she won, I think, a, a Tony for. But... The um, the story in the the way it's portrayed in the book is very similar to how it is portrayed in the movie, except for the injury in the in the book. I think she cuts his leg, his ankle. His she feet actually off. chops him off with an axe, right? Right. And she hobbles him by breaking his ankles in the movie, and they right. made they made that as a choice because it was it was too violent, right? Which I thought was very interesting. Ugh, but once again, rough. what they do is they portray. And again, as we've always said, you know, we are advocates for mental health treatment and protecting the rights of the mentally ill and making sure that everybody is moving towards destigmatization of mental illness. And yet this is a story of, of someone who's, who's mentally ill and non-compliant with treatment and the nature of their illness is that they've identified with a character in a book. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a thing. Mm-hmm. These things happen. People with psychotic delusions that think they're Jesus or think that they're Napoleon or think that they're Elijah and their fiery chariot is, chariot is waiting to take them out on yep. the street. You know, these things happen. So I um, thought it was really well done, um, especially you see her performance. It's it's amazing. You get even without context that there's a history of trauma. She's mentally ill, but there's a real history of trauma, even by the word choice, like the real sort of moral code against cursing. Yep. 
you know, you're, and I remember until when the, the end, until the end, <laughs> but remember, you know, like you're a dirty bird and he didn't get out of the cocky duty car. Yep. I mean, yep. and, and when you're reading it, you're like, it's because you're having that intimate experience and you're scared sitting in your bed or in your living room, reading this, this horrifying novel. And then in the movie theater, you're nervously laughing because it's so over the top crazy and still terrifying. Yeah. It's such yeah. a great scene. I'm, I'm can't be giving any spoilers because I'm sure you've seen it. However, one last thing about Misery is that the series on Hulu, Castle Rock, which is an anthology series, much like American Horror Story, it all takes place in the Stephen King universe. Season one was interesting, but almost unintelligible. Like even as a, as a huge fan, I had a hard time following it um, based on a really obscure short story by Stephen King. Season two is a combination of misery of, of um, Annie Wilkes's backstory mm-hmm. and the backstory of Salem's lot. I highly, highly recommend it. You can now marathon the first, I think four episodes. It's so good. But one of the things that the actress Lizzie Kaplan, who's amazing, like she's been around forever. She was in mean girls. Yep. She yep. was like the goth um, yeah. friend. I love her. She's amazing. And she, one of the things you do in seeing this woman who's trying to control her mental illness, she knows she's mentally ill. She knows that she's traumatized. She moves around because she has a secret. She's trying to raise a daughter. She's trying to stay medicated. And so now they bring in a supernatural element. So she, her own reality is tested. She doesn't know if what she's seeing is a result of her psychosis or if something is really happening. But you, what Lizzie Kaplan also gets is you just really see this undercurrent of violence that is is wonderfully done. Did but, she say Mr. Man at all? She hasn't said <laughs> Mr. Yet. Man, but she's had some of those things. And she does this walk. Because Lizzie Kaplan is a very attractive woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's really attractive. But she does this thing with like a blunt haircut and sort of almost like like Kathy Bates does with the barrettes, you know, sort of like childlike dressing and kind of kid oriented scrubs. And, um, I don't even want to give too much away. It's so good. It was so nice to go back and watch misery and Kathy Bates just as the, the night that they have the candlelit dinner together and she dresses, she's so pretty and just adorable. It was very childlike. I know very childlike, but just looking at young Kathy Bates and, Seeing her kind of in that glow is was cute to go back. Well, and, see. and that it, there's also a, a a very interesting psych perspective on that particular scene is building up to that scene in the narrative is that she's decided that when he finishes the book to bring the character misery back to life, that they're going to die. Right. She's going to kill him and then she's going to commit suicide. Right. And she's told him this. Yeah. And he's smart enough to go along with it. So there is something that does tend to happen with people that are at the point of suicide, whether they are psychotic or, or sort of, you know, in the, just the depressive range is that there's an incredible sense of relief Mm -hmm. that they know their pain is going to be over. And I think that I don't know if she did that much research into psych profiles, but she certainly really nails it. Yeah. I, and I'm glad you brought that up, just talking about him going along with what he knows is her plan, but trying to survive. Because it brings me back to talking about appeasement when we were talking about Stockholm Syndrome. Yes. And all these subtle ways in which you see that he's seeing the writing on the wall, but then appeasing her 
in all the ways he can think of just to live long enough to get strong enough after his accident to hopefully turn the tide. So yeah, it's so good. I'm gonna, as soon as the I want to watch it again as soon as I wa- finish the Hulu series. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to go around now that we've done the Hollywood version and we've given you one case example. One of the things that Shiloh and I were really astounded by, even as we were sitting this morning talking about, you know, our outline for the show is how many there are. Yeah, there's a lot. It, it's a lot and it's worldwide. And it, I mean, Dr. Field does show in his research that the predominance uh, and and the ones with the most victims tend to be here in the West. There is one example of a case in um, Japan which had a huge number of victims, but it's like an outlier for the population. Right. Whereas it seems to be almost a cultural phenomenon that it is even possible here. Yeah, that that one is a, an interesting one. I think there's some different dynamics going on there. In the, the Asian one? Yeah. 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 You want me to talk about that one real quick? Yeah, start with um, that. So just, I'm not going to get super deep into it, but um, Miyuki Ishikawa. So she... This took place in Tokyo. Um, She was a Japanese midwife. And in the 1940s, between 1944 and 1948, it's estimated that she had upwards from 103 victims that were infants. Um, So she worked in a facility where the infants of the poor in the 1940s were because of their financial struggles unable to raise their children properly and she was just one of a handful of midwives that were to look over all of these infants and there was a big lack of social and charitable services to help support the women that were raising these kids in this facility clinic i don't even know what you want to call it um and so essentially, I mean, I didn't, I don't want to say she had to, but she had this dilemma where at some point she just chose to neglect numerous infants because there wasn't enough of her to go around. So uh, many whom died were, it was just from neglect and natural causes because she couldn't tend to all of them. So she was overwhelmed right. and there was a, probably more of a cultural aspect to the pressure of, of the responsibility. So I mean, that just immediately, you're right, this is an outlier case because this is one where that level of overwhelm, that just, that you start compartmentalizing your thinking. Sure. Yeah. What do you do? Do you, are you so overwhelmed and then you leave your job, but then that's one less person to do this job? Right. Or do you just start picking and choosing? I don't know. It sounds like an awful situation. I know this case actually directly influenced Japan's laws on um, abortion. And did they have this explosion of um, the infant population that they weren't able to contain or control? Um, But she ended up with 103 known victims um, getting four years in prison. So there's a lot of writing on like, oh, that wasn't enough. But it it seems like, if anything, probably the context was taken into consideration um, to where she only got four years. So. Yeah, so uh, that's that's a great example, especially I like you starting out with one that clearly is an outlier. Um, there's one that I wanted to start with, Donald Harvey. 
and he was a nurse's aide. This is back in 1988. He had... Um, here in the U.S.? It was here in the U.S., 37 murders in both Ohio and Kentucky. Um, and he later even confessed to poisoning an additional 58 patients. Wow. And then later even claimed um, that the number, I think, went up to 87 uh, victims. And, you know, he, this was one of the one he saw himself as an angel of mercy and he would use uh, cyanide. He would look very, very small, but um, lethal dose of cyanide, which I think gets out of the system pretty quickly. Um, he did smother some patients, but interestingly enough, which is different from many of the other nurses, uh, many of the, the killer nurses is that he used a variety of, of, um, I said, I was about to say potions, poisons. <laughs> He's not Snape. But he kept a record of all of his kills and he in journals. So he had uh, basically sort of handwritten spreadsheets of wow. how he killed people and he tracked it. Um, and then I think during the course of the trial, he even stated that he could recall the name and the face of every single one of his victims. So, um, wow, something that he was kind of gloating about, huh? Right. That's something that he was like, had pride about. And even, I think, that even the prosecutors. Um, were able to assert that they did not believe he killed as many people as he claimed he did. Right. That they felt like this was actually a bid for attention. Um, and they, in this particular case, I thought this was a really odd decision by the the um, prosecution, is that they waived, um, the they traded the death penalty for a guilty plea, saying that they wanted to spare the grieving families a trial. But... I don't know. That mm-hmm. seems like a, a little bit of a cop out. That's that's possible. But, you know, the psychiatrists that were able to uh, do full evaluations on him described him as a compulsive, sadistic killer and he that he knew exactly what he was doing and he was actually killing for pleasure. And, you know, they completely belie his claims that it was being done out of compassion. And he had used because he used things like um arsenic which is a very uncomfortable way to die Mm -hmm. and that he also infected people with the hepatitis virus so it's like that's a and back in 88 i mean now you can actually even cure hepatitis c and hepatitis a and b if you know caught in time i mean they become i mean it's not really a chronic condition unless you have other um, comorbid factors but back then this would have been a way of infecting someone and impairing them for a long time it would have been you know, almost like in, infecting someone with HIV, which oh, is we, yeah, it's we've the seen the opposite of a mercy. Yeah, it's it's yeah. more like I'm going to torture you for a long and slow slow way, even if I'm not going to be there to witness all of it. Right. Um, so he, uh, he, this is also somebody that engaged in torture behaviors. He used a coat hanger to um, to uh, pierce a, a, a patient's uh, catheter. And uh, which caused the the poor elderly man to die from infection a few days later. But in the background, what we were talking about in case of the fictional, you know, uh, Annie Wilkes and Janine is that there was uh, a history of severe abuse. He was severely sexually abused as a child, which they think really contributed to a, a person's development of his personality disorder. Um and he also had this sort of narcissistic component where he really thought he was smarter than everybody else. Sure. So, which would be interesting. So if you're that smart, then maybe you should have gone for to full nursing school instead of just being a nursing <laughs> assistant. Um, 
his uh, he's in prison right now and his first parole hearing is 2047. So mm. they got him for, I mean, they, you know, the, didn't no death penalty, but he's going to be in for a long time. Right. So there's um, one out of Italy. And the only one that I wanted to, the reason I wanted to talk about Sonia Calef, Calefi out of Italy, um, she got arrested after five patients uh, in her care all died within the period of one month. And um, the police, the Italian police were claiming that they're really, they really think that, you know, historically they, there's probably a history of killings that they are unable to uncover. Um, she was the one that would in, induce um, embolisms by uh, injecting air bubbles into clients, which is a horrific way to die. It caused respiratory failure, but it's supposed to be very, very painful. And she also kept a record of her kills in a notebook oh. at home. So there were four other deaths at the hospital that they thought were very suspicious. Um, and in each one of the cases, uh, Sonia would clear the family members and like get everybody out of the room. Um, and you know, I've got to take, you know, you, there's too many people here. Let me take care of the client, take care of the patient. And then of course they'd all like, uh, have a crisis and, and die. And the only reason that I wanted to say this is because, I mean, this sounds like a horrible case and, you know, um, terrible victims, but because we did our Amanda Knox, I just, I'm suspicious of any kind of police work that comes out of Italy. I have an, I have an Italian one too. You, got different an, from you her. found another one? Yeah. And Who it's horrific. It? Uh, Daniela Poggiali. I didn't and, see that one. Okay. I'm just real quick. So uh, she is believed her motive, um, for killing her patients was simply because they really irritated her. Which was a common theme. Right. And the, like, like you said, the whining The patients. whining, like they were really annoying, like and male and female killer nurses saying, well, they were just, they bugged me. Oh, terrible. So you can't, you can't piss off your wait staff because they'll spit in your food and you don't want to be irritating to your nurses. <laughs> Seriously. But Daniela would, and, and this is like 2014, she was offending, but she would take photographs of herself next to the corpses of the patients oh, on her smartphone. Oh, this is the selfie one. And then post them online. Oh, my gosh. Um, in, in some of them that were taken in January 2014 by another nurse. So another nurse is taking, they're not is just engaged, selfies. Right, exactly. But, um, she's laughing. She's making lewd gestures next to the corpse of an old lady who died in her ward. Um, in one, she's leaning over the corpse, grinning and making a thumbs up sign. Um, colleagues later told police that she was quote, particularly euphoric and wanted to have her photo taken next to the dead bodies. But, um, I, I don't, I just, I had a little snippet because what of do you her. think that's about? Like the, the, the idea, I mean, like the murder thing I can, so is this going to be attention? It's not really attention seeking, but is it more like grandiosity? Or histrionic. I mean, because there, the picture I saw of her mm -hmm. was like making sort of with lay, laying over the bed of the deceased patient, and she's right. got her tongue sticking out like she's like she's dying. She's got her right. eyes rolled back, but she's also like flashing a peace sign or something. Yeah, there was a peace sign, and then there's one like you're describing where she was pointing a finger at her face, like yes. it was a gun to the client, like she had. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm trying to separate the behavior of because there could if someone didn't kill their patients, 
but was just taking pictures and selfies of themselves with the dead bodies and then posting them online. What is that about? But then to facilitate that by actually creating the death. Um, well, that would, cre- sure. that would, uh, yeah, that would be like a, like, a, like one a, is feeding the other. That'd be a comorbid diagnosis right, almost right. because one is, I mean, if it was no, if it wasn't causing the death, you could also say, well, that's just incredibly immature. Sure. Right? Sure. Or, yeah. an, or maybe we could even say like they're, they're overwhelmed and can't deal with the reality of someone dying. Well, or it's just an extreme version of posting everything online and the culture of, yeah, here's my life. Here's my day at work. And I happen to create it. Right. Right. Yeah. Italy, man. Well, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I still, I still want to go, but oh my gosh. Um, so let's see, what is one of the other, there was one out of, uh, Alabama, there was a male out of... Um, we got to hit Italy and Alabama. Italy, Italy and episode. Alabama. Oh, I know. It was his name is John... No, Joseph Dewey Aiken, which not so much Joseph, but Dewey Aiken. Those are pretty damn Southern names, yep. you know, having been from Alabama. Um, and he was in Birmingham, which is the city I went to college in. This was 1991. And um, he was charged with... He was 32 years old at the time and uh, charged with one count of murder. But, and it was uh, done by an injection, which we found is the most common method. It was alleged that he had injected the individual with a fatal overdose of lidocaine, um, which is used as a heart medication. And it's also like a, a local anesthetic, mm-hmm. though. It's, you can buy it actually over the counter if you have back plasters. You know, they're made with lidocaine. So... Um, this is one of the ones that the prosecution went after the interviews that, and that they brought to trial. Uh, he was one of the ones that also confessed that he got a thrill hearing a heart, heart rate monitor, uh, trip its alarm. And then, so not necessarily like we gave the example of the nurse crawling into bed with a client. He liked watching the heart rate slow down or race up, trip the alarm, and then, sending the entire hospital into crisis mode. Right. So it's like, it's wow. like, like an arson, an arsonist pulling a fire alarm and just seeing everybody start running around mm-hmm. like an, in, like sort of a, a motivation towards it, like a really malignant instigation. Um, so he was convicted successfully. Um, but he also was appealed. He appealed it. Um, and there was no doubt that he was guilty. And this was one of those things that happened in court from a dumbass juror because there was a potential juror that was not dismissed. And she said from the beginning, she thought he was guilty, which if you're not familiar with that, that's a bias that you don't want a juror going in there with. So they had, he was, it wasn't a mistrial, but he was able to appeal it because of that. Um, but in following him around all over the South, especially in Georgia, they were, they found him to be a suspect in at least 17 suspicious deaths, um, in Roswell where he had worked in 1990. He's never been charged in those crimes though. So that's a couple. Did you have another one? Yeah. I just want to talk quickly about Beverly Allett out of the UK because I think there's just some really bizarre stuff about her, but she, sorry, um, just, 
bumping everything here. Um, so she had 13 victims, four deaths. The others did not die. But this was just over a period of like 59 days um, between February and April in 1991. And she was a nurse in the children's ward at Grantham and Keviston Hospitals in Lincolnshire. Um, so she was a state enrolled nurse was the title. But she... Um, created victims by administering large doses of insulin. Ooh, and that's another painful yeah, one. Yeah, another one. Um, and I think you were talking earlier about um, the adoration and seeing the family put their trust in them and sort of feeding off of that attention as well. Well, she ended up killing one of two twin girls and the parents saw her as such a stoic figure in their time of their daughter's death that they actually made her the godmother of their other twin girl. Oh, my God. Um, she would be there when the babies went into crisis, medical crisis, and always ride in the ambulance with the family and the child to, like, if they were going to a... a a hospital with a higher level pediatric unit. She would always be there for that whole process, insert herself there. Um, but when they were going back, there was a criminologist in the Netflix series that was talking about some of the, the background after she had went and talked to family members and colleagues, but really bizarre behavior, both at the workplace and at home with family and around family members where People reported that she would catheterize herself. Um, she would inject water into her breasts by with using syringes. Um, people said that in, in the workplace, there would be like feces on a grill pan or they would find menstrual blood on doorknobs. So that could be... I mean, that's interesting to me. I mean, diagnostically, I look at that from which direction I want to want to go, which, I mean, that's an, could be seen as psychotic. Oh, absolutely. It could also be a, a characterological, like what we used to call axis two, which could be schizotypal, mm -hmm. you know, just like these really severe eccentric behaviors, yeah. but, or, I mean, what now, but we don't have the information, but what would be interesting is to know, like, was there an onset? of those behaviors was this was this her baseline had she know. always been weird but like the body modification of a nurse to inject water right. into your breast like and you're a nurse you're a nurse you know that that could kill you yeah yeah she when she was under investigation she was super tricky and in her her interrogations really savvy cool as a cucumber they could Annie Wilkes they could not nail her down um when she was under investigation she went to go live with a friend and that friend had um, a teen, I don't know if it was a teenage son or like a nephew, someone, a teenage boy that was living there who came down with some suspicious illnesses after he took drinks from her. And the dog, the family dog was found on the front lawn foaming at the mouth one day as well. Um, so yeah, she, she's, I just think she's an interesting one because of the bizarre yeah, that, other was, that takes it into that another, that takes it out of just sort of uh, characterological or, or access to disorder yeah, and definitely. more like if there's some kind of uh, psychosis present. Um, I, you know, there's a Canadian nurse from 2007, 2014, uh, Elizabeth Tracy May Whitelaufer, 
and she focused on killing elderly clients um, and she was convicted of killing eight people. And the tragic thing, the reason I use this particular case without going into a tons of detail is that she had actually confessed to four people, including a pastor, and no one took her seriously. Wow. How does that happen? Wow. I mean, I, I mean, obviously what levels of confession that right. was, but, but uh, this is, this is one of the ones that we were talking about is that, um, the ones that she killed, she described as being mean. One of the things that's being said, a, uh, a quote from one of the killers that is particularly chilling is the ones who got on my nerves were dispatched directly to a free bed with the good Lord. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the idea is like, yeah, that I, you know, if someone made me angry, I give them a free bed in heaven. Hmm which is just frightening, frightening, yeah. frightening. Maybe you're making heaven overcrowded by all of the uh, good deeds you're doing. Right. There was a <laughs> there's British... no more beds. <laughs> yeah. Well, now saying beds, um, the, you know, maybe there's beds in heavens, but there's uh, here at, my, at Barbara Salisbury is a British nurse. And um, her motive was supposedly efficiency. And oh. she wanted to clear out the beds. Triage. Triage. Like, like, like let's clean this out. You know, um, let's uh, get rid of uh, the ones that are taking up. And she would pick out the ones that she felt like didn't weren't likely to survive or do well. So right. they're going to die anyway. So let's My go. Goodness. Um, I just find it's a fascinating subject, and we've only touched the tip of the iceberg. If you guys I are interested no in this, yeah. I mean, if, as you were going to mention, just kind of further reading. There's a book called Behind the Murder Curtain that just came out last year. So this is written by Bruce Sackman, and he was a special agent in charge of the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of the Inspector General. He's an investigator for like 32 years, and he ended up investigating murders committed by nurses and doctors within the VA system, which is really interesting. I have not read the book. I, I know he highlights four different serial offenders um, that – one is a doctor whose name was Michael Swango, and it was he was featured on um, a Discovery Channel episode and some others. But just horrific. You know, when you talk about people, doctors and medical professionals being able to move from facility to facility, this has it all. Falsifying documents, also trying to poison his coworkers. Jeez. Just crazy stuff. Um, but that would be a really good resource if people want to dive more case-specific is this book behind the murder curtain. Um, and just circling back around to April Taylor, who is a, a, actually a renowned author. She's done all sorts of mysteries and um, horror fantasy and sci-fi, it looks like. Um, and she was writing for a ranker, you know, doing a, a listicle of nurses who kill. She was one of the ones that kind of uh, provided us with a springboard into this after it was suggested by Dee. Check out the Ranker page um, on uh, Angels of Mercy. She does a great job, and she does a really great job of putting links to all of her sources in there if you want to read more. There's um, going to be a Netflix series with the back or origin story of Nurse, Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, which would be great. Sarah Paulson oh, is going to play her. She can do anything. I know. She's awesome. So that will be exciting to see. Um, all right. Well, that's all we got for you today. As far as killer nurses, keep the suggestions coming. We've got another great one this week. That oh, is really interesting to look into. That was I a think. great one. Yeah. Um, but other than that, please run over and give us a review and make sure you're subscribing. So you get all the new episodes with on whatever platform you listen to. I know we always talk about Apple podcasts, but we have a huge number of people live, listening on 
Stitcher and CastBox and just tons of other platforms. So we we value all of you. Um, And we also have really interesting articles that Dr. Scott posts on Facebook. Well, articles and, you know, sketches and (laughs) things like that that are interesting and fun. Um, So you can find us at LA Not So Confidential over on Facebook and on Instagram or at LA Not So Pod. And then on Twitter, I try to put lots of articles up on our Twitter feed as well. So that's LA Not So Pod. Instagram is LA Not So Podcast. Yes. Okay. Um, Other than that, we will see you in our next episode and take care and we'll see you next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye-bye. Bye.